0: Hello and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. Cleopatra's Bling travels around the world meeting fascinating creatives, craftsmen, and women, and cultural experts to inspire our artisanal collections. This podcast invites you into those intimate conversations which bring tradition and practices from the past into the present. Storytelling is an integral part of artisanal jewellery making, whether it's in the story behind a certain piece or behind a unique design. One story that has always fascinated me is that of the mermaid. She is a symbol that has followed humanity through its greatest triumphs and failures, and though her meaning has changed, she has remained an enigmatic figure that continues to inspire artisans today. To give us a better vision of how the mermaid icon has kept its magic to this day, I sat down with Sarah Peverley. Mermaid Expert. Sarah is a medieval studies expert whose obsession with mermaids and mermaid myths has made her the go to mermaid expert for the BBC and dozens of other publications. I spoke to Sarah about the very first mermaid symbols, how they've been adapted to each cultural time, and how they will be seen in the future. Enjoy. So, you're specialised in mermaid folklore. How does one get into that line of work?
1: Oh, that's a a difficult question. I I guess I've always been interested in them. They were one of my favorite things as a child. Um, I guess I really became super passionate about them when I first encountered Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. And most people know that today from the Disney version, which actually has a happy ending, and the original tale doesn't. the The mermaid in that sacrifices her tail and her voice to try and win the love of a prince, and she goes through a lot of pain. Um, the magic that's used to give her a pair of legs means that every time she walks, it's like walking on glass. And she goes through all this suffering and sacrifice. And in the end, sadly, the prince marries somebody else. And when I first encountered that tale, it was, it was not through actually reading it because I was probably still too young to read that myself. It was through a Japanese anime version of it, which was released in the late 70s, early 80s. And my mum and dad had rented it for me as a video one day, one railing day, and I sat and watched it and was hoping that it was going to have a happy ending because I only really had encountered pretty happy endings in the stories that had been read to me and that, uh, the the cartoons that I'd seen. And it didn't have a happy ending. It broke my heart. And I remember running to the bathroom in tears and locking myself in there and, and crying and crying because the poor mermaid had, had died at the end. She, she turned to foam and, and vanished. And that, that really upset me. And I, But I, I loved the story. There was just something about it. And from then on, I, I read that tale myself regularly. And that started my passion Getting older, I started to appreciate that they weren't just figures of childhood fun. They, they have something about them. They have qualities about them that speak to coming of age, to, to growing up and being a woman. Um, they're very powerful creatures. And, and that's what I've found so fascinating about them as an adult. And that's kind of prompted me to well, not kind of, it definitely prompted me to to pursue them as a topic of interest and I'm currently working on a mermaid history across time and across the globe.
0: I think everyone has an idea of what a mermaid looks like in their head, but I would love to hear a mermaid expert describe a mermaid.
1: Well, this this is very difficult again. I mean, we all know the traditional mermaid. She has long flowing hair. Um, before Ariel, Disney's Ariel came along, they were normally blonde-haired beauties, but obviously Ariel has um, changed all of that, mixed it up a lot. So sometimes you see them with red hair, sometimes dark hair. Um, many Western mermaids have um, white skin, but there are that's not to say that there isn't a very rich history of black mermaids as well, um and then of course a fish tail so that's that's our traditional view of a mermaid, but people have been mixing up that traditional view for quite some time um more recent examples in the last sort of hundred years or so would be Rene Magritte's reverse mermaid, where it's a fish on the top half of the body, and then the bottom half is legs. Um, you can also have mermaids without tails, of course. Um, so there, there are, there is no one fixed image of a mermaid. A mermaid can be all kinds of things to lots of different people. It very much depends on the culture and the time period that you're thinking about for a mermaid. But the, the, the kind of catch-all one, the one that's most familiar is the beautiful woman with the fishtail. Is there one in particular that stands out in your mind when you think of mermaids? Well, I imagine apart for uh, the main one for me would be Han- Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid, but she doesn't have a name, which is interesting. She's a, a nameless creature. Um, growing up, probably Ariel was very influential. She was feisty. She was. She had a name. She had an identity of her own. She had a very rich life in the sea before. Uh, coming to land before obtaining a pair of legs. So she would probably be the next one that would stand out for me in my own personal history. But there are all kinds of fascinating creatures. Um, I really love the one that was associated with Mary, Queen of Scots in the 16th century. Um, uh, Mary was tainted with accusations of murdering her husband. And one of the political pamphlets that circulated trying to um condemn the queen, and it was pinned up in marketplaces and on church doors, was an image of her as a mermaid with a crown on and a hawk lure. So the fact that she's waving a hawk lure um, was kind of indicative of the fact that she was sexually proactive and a, a, a very scary kind of mermaid, uh, more of a siren figure who would entice the men around the around her and the men that were attracted to her to their doom. So it draws very much on siren iconography from the classical period. Okay, so how far back does the mermaid symbol actually go? Uh, mermaids have been with us since the dawn of civilization. They're, they're there in the earliest cultures that we have records for, not just written records, but archaeological records. Um, Ancient Mesopotamia is the place where we first see the kind of mermaid that we most people would identify with today, uh, a half-human, half-fish creature. Um, There are some other oddities as well in early cultures but certainly it's it's that kind of cradle of civilization if you like um in in that area of ancient mesopotamia that gives us the first proper merfolk, folk if you like the the first that we would recognize as as Mer people you don't always necessarily have to have uh, the ocean nearby to have a culture that that has mermaids embodied in it. Um, obviously, seafaring and Mediterranean, maritime countries, uh, Greece, Rome, uh, Turkey, for example, you have lots of mermaids very early on. Um, you also get them where rivers and springs are. But the the ancient Mesopotamian merfolk are linked with the waters of life. So in, in ancient mythology, they thought that all things were created or, or or sparked from the ancient waters, these primordial waters. And the merfolk end up being the servants of some heroes and gods that control, um, all of the world and all of creation. So the fact that we're not, um, Necessarily surrounded by oceans doesn't matter because they're, they're linked very early on with life giving water and that connection that humans have with water. It's essential to life. And in many of the ancient cultures, that's where we get merfolk first arising with that connection with those primordial, um, elements that Give life to mankind. So that they're, they're there at our formation, if you like. And it doesn't take much to make a connection with the, what we would now call supernatural elements. Um, but what for ancient people were, were just part of the natural world, the unseen things that govern the weather, the waters, the crops, um, the animals. Um, where do we go when we die merfolk are connected up with big questions like that and that's why they appear very early on because they're one of the ways of trying to navigate those big questions like other mythological creatures so it's also in these these early cultures that we get things like um winged men which later uh become or uh, transform into angels. Um, We get a bull man, a man that's half man, half bull. Uh, We get later on centaurs as well, half man, half horse or half woman, half horse. So these hybrid creatures are ways of exploring humanity's connection with the wider world around them.
0: Okay, so that might explain why there are so many legends of mermaid creatures throughout history and people trying to find explanations for humanity's big questions. So how does someone like Melusine, also known as Partanope, fit into the mermaid history books?
1: <laughs> that's that's a good one, uh, I imagine, uh, for the earlier period. Um, Melusine is a water spirit that has to transform every Saturday back into her... Fairy form and her fairy form in many legends, many versions of her story, and certainly in the earliest versions of the story, is half woman, half serpent. And serpents in the medieval period, when we first find the Melusine legend written down, are akin with dragons as well. So, serpent is another word for dragon, but it's also um, linked with serpents, uh, snakes. Snakes are seen as being a kind of dragon. Uh, and they get defined as that in medieval books. So the earliest versions of the Melusine story uh, tell the tale of how she falls in love with a man called Raymondan and brings him great riches and territories. She helps found several castles. She gives him lots of children, some of whom are born with very strange marks. One has a, a lion's paw coming out of his face And that's a a marker of her fairy status. Now, what Melusine does is she has a very happy marriage with her husband for a long time. And he respects the caveat, the, the one caution that she's given him when she married him that is every Saturday he has to leave her alone, not ask where she's going and what she's doing and just let her do her thing in secret. And he doesn't know what her secret is, but he respects that until his brother one day convinces him to follow her and and see what she's been doing. And he spies on her in her bathroom and sees that she is a a magical creature, that she has a serpent's tail. And he keeps quiet about his betrayal and they carry on living happily until one of their sons um, does terrible deeds and in front of his whole court, he ends up being angry and, and he shouts at Melusine that this is because of her, because she's a false serpent. And of course, serpents also have Christian connections with the Garden of Eden and betrayal and, and the devil and, and sin. And at that point, Melusine has to leave. It's part of the magic that surrounds her relationship with her husband. And she turns into a dragon and flies out of the window. But she later comes back to nurse her children, her younger children. And also she's said to appear flying around the castle of Lusignan in France whenever it changes hands. So this story gets embedded into French culture in particular, but also later into English culture. And many of the great houses throughout Europe tried to connect their most ancient genealogy with Melusine. She was seen as being the mother of many nations. And so some of the later versions, particularly the Luxembourg version of her legend, she begins to transform into a mermaid. And that that's her secret, that when she bathes every Saturday, she turns into a mermaid, she has a fishtail. But the serpent tail and the fishtail are very interchangeable in early culture and and so she can be seen as a mermaid figure. She's a very interesting one. Okay, so I wonder, are there specific stories that kind of solidified
0: the concept of the mermaid? And do you have an example of a mythos that might have fueled her story around the world?
1: Well, largely it tends to be... um, uh, folklore traditions but they they of course are very different the world over but the, there's a really nice example from Africa of uh the mamiwata um spirit um mamiwata originally start out as a collection of water deities that have um No mermaid form to begin with, although they they are creatures and spirits of the water. So the water is their natural element. They are are beings that belong there. But once we get a transmission of Western ideas of the mermaid coming through um, all the terrible and tragic history of white, colonial presence in Africa, that exposure to the Western form of the mermaid gets absorbed into African culture. And now Mami Wata, she she has two key ways of being depicted. So one is as a, a a beautiful woman who is often shown with snakes draped around her. And the other is as a mermaid, but that mermaid version of Mami Water is fairly recent. It's within the last, uh, one, two hundred years or so. I think it's one hundred years. Um, certainly from the 19th century onwards. Um, it's not, it's not something that has been there throughout. Now, that's not to say that we haven't had other water spirits in Africa be depicted with a human and, and, Fish form. But Mami Wat is a good example of the way in which uh, things have shifted because of external influences. So, one culture and its version of water creatures impacting on, on another one.
0: It's so interesting to hear how far back the mermaid story goes. And actually, moving forward into the present day, what can you tell us about the way the mermaid has transformed from that medieval view to what we know today?
1: Well, from the classical period, right through um, right through to the present day, mermaids have always been there in some form, and they've always been used in some way by humans to explore dispar- different aspects of humanity. So we have, as I've just mentioned in ancient um cultures, a connection there with how humans uh, identified and contextualized their own place in the wider framework of the world, in the, the wider framework of creation. This remains fairly similar throughout the Middle Ages, where mermaids are used by the church, the Western Christian church, to teach people about sin and salvation. The mermaid worked well, along with other mythological creatures uh, in they were carved into churches. They appear in, um, medieval books as examples of the dual nature of mankind and, and the, the ability for mankind to be saved or damned. And yet it can also ho- offer hope because there is a higher level of humanity that's represented by the human half of the creature. Um, so the, they were used fairly consistently from the ancient times up until the end of the Middle Ages. When we get to the Renaissance, there's a shift, and we find that they are used more decoratively in that period onwards. Of course, when you reach the Victorian era, uh, that's when mermaids really become sexualized. We see examples of this before the Victorian period, but the Victorian artists were really to blame for the the sexual allure of the mermaid and the emphasis on the female body as a beautiful object. Um, Many of the painters would paint naked mermaids as it was easier to circumvent censorship that way. So you weren't really, it wasn't the done thing to paint a naked woman. But if you call that naked woman that you're painting a fairy or a mermaid, Uh, set it in a mythological um, context, um, say that you're evoking old myths and old folklore, then it suddenly becomes more acceptable to have this semi-naked or naked woman um, depicted. And that was one of the reasons that they were so popular because they allowed artists to explore the female form um, in this very erotic uh, way, depict it in an erotic way without coming under attack for um, being licentious, I suppose. So what do you think
0: of the mermaid being used as a feminist symbol today then? And what do you see as being the future of the mermaid symbol in today's world?
1: So taking the first part of the question, the the feminist aspect of the mermaid, women and mermaids have always been connected. You can pick any point in the mermaid's history and it's also the history of women and how they've been treated, how they've been defined, how they've been depicted throughout human culture. Um, so the mermaid's history is a very rich one um, in terms of women's studies and and the history of women today, that that duality that the mermaid has always had the the fact that she can be a positive symbol and the fact that she can be a negative stim- symbol is still unfortunately there with us. So from my perspective as a mermaid historian, I can see that there are very positive things today where women can use the mermaid as an empowering symbol. They they find that the mermaid gives them freedom to recover from trauma. Um, There are many people now taking up the sport of mermaiding which I, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it's where you put on a a fabric or a, a silicone mermaid tail and you go swimming like a mermaid. And many people find that freedom of swimming and that immersion in water very liberating. So the whole idea of being a mermaid, of immersing yourself, of doing uh, swimming in a pool or swimming in the ocean, That that in itself is a a form of freedom and many people are using the mermaid as a a way of doing that. So in that sense, the mermaid can be a positive symbol um, for reclaiming back an identity that perhaps has been too subsumed by uh, the world around us, the the societies that we live in. Um, There are still negative sides to the mermaid and how it's being used. We live in an age now, particularly the 21st century, but it also started happening at the end of the 20th century um, where the mermaid has become very, very commercialized. It's been used a lot for what I would see as, as kind of anti-feminist um, uh, products. So the, an, enf- an overemphasis on sparkly makeup and skimpy tops and pants and fashions that actually continue to sexualize the female body and objectify it and that is not really empowering so there's, there's still that duality to the mermaid today and although she's sold as an empowering creature there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of money making going on from that exploitation of what society says that women should look like you should be beautiful and wear makeup you should have nice clothing you should look attractive that that kind of narrative I don't think is very helpful and some people are exploiting the mermaid for that end so I think the the mermaid's still in a position where we can use her positively and we can also use her negatively and I would hope that going forward she becomes more of a positive icon. She certainly is changing lives, um, every day. I think, um, for transgendered people, particularly that the mermaid has become a really empowering symbol because she, she represents gender fluidity. Um, she has no discernible genitalia. She has mermaid fishtail. And so she's, she's a perfect icon for, for, Removing, removing this, the very overly sexualized nature of mermaids from the past, and 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 defi- trying to define gender as a, in a binary way, the mermaid as a hybrid creature is something that joins opposites and and helps them to be discussed and talked about as a unified whole. So certainly there's a there's a good force, um, a force for good in the mermaid figure in contemporary culture. And for the second part of your your question, where do I see it going? The mermaid will adapt and change and continue to be with us as a symbol because she is such a flexible and adaptable symbol quite where that leads us in the future is is anybody's guess really but i really don't see mermaids going out of fashion anytime soon they'll stay with us they they are the darling of filmmakers of novelists of poets of artists of advertisers and yeah they they just they are everywhere they are so embedded in all aspects of our culture that there will always be a place for the mermaid, and that place is alongside humans helping us to work out who we are and what we what we mean to the world and and where we're going. Uh, if I had to pin it down, I would say that the mermaid's going to continue to be an important ecological symbol going forward. She's started to be that recently, and there's a very very famous professional mermaid called Hannah Fraser who is doing much good in the world by raising awareness of the oceans and ocean pollution and and also the extinction of ocean animals and the endangered nature of many of them and she swims in her own uh homemade mermaid tails and she's done some incredible videos uh, with whale sharks with tiger sharks with uh, rays of, of all different kinds. And she takes the, the stance that by showing people something beautiful, by showing them a beautiful mermaid swimming with beautiful creatures, it will make people care more. And, and I think that's, that's good. That's a force for good. And that's one of the ways in which the more negative side of the mermaid's beauty and the exploitation of that in 21st century culture with makeup and fashion and that kind of stuff can actually be reconciled with the positive side of mermaids and that that sense of personal agency and responsibility and identity that by using the beautiful side, the attractive side of mermaids, we can actually all be a force for trying to reverse the negative things in the world like global warming and ocean pollution. So going forward, I would hope that that the ecological side, the mermaid is an ecological symbol, really, really helps, uh, really takes off. Okay,
0: great. So I'd like to throw in some speed round questions. So just answer off the top of your head. If you could describe mermaids using just three words, what would they be?
1: Beautiful, liberated, strong. So what is something you've learned that would surprise someone about mermaids? That the church used them in medieval times as a symbol of Jesus Christ. They represented his dual nature. Oh, so what is your favorite mermaid that you've studied? (laughs) Uh, My favorite mermaid has to be Hans Christian Andersen's, but uh, I have have affection for all mermaids of all different times and, and periods
0: thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview Sarah
1: thanks Olivia thanks for inviting me thank you for
0: listening to Cleopatra's wing podcast for more information on Sarah look her up at SaraPeverly.com and check out our related siren song collection which was inspired by the myth of the siren melisene also known as Partenope, and her connection to the city of Naples at cleopatrasbling.com. This podcast was produced by Studio Orcenta with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and send us some stars on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, stay curious.